Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and I'm in the beautiful Spurgeon Library studio with my colleague, friend, Ronnie Kurtz. Once again, we're going to uh, engage in another episode of the FTC Mailbag. Uh, Every now and then, we ask uh, the question on Twitter, Facebook, our, our different social media streams. What are some uh, questions, topics that you'd like us to discuss? Um, if you would like to submit a topic or a question for an upcoming episode of The Mailbag, uh, just use the hashtag FTC Mailbag. <laughs> it's pretty simple. <laughs> just use the hashtag Schenectady New York <laughs> and we'll find it. Uh, no, FT- FTC mailbag, uh, or every now and then I'll just sort of like, you know, get the wheels greased and say, what would you like us to cover? And, and people reply. And um, and so like a, a whale in the ocean sifting through the krill. That's what I've done with these Man. questions. I know. Um, we had a lot of good questions, actually. Yeah. And, and in fact, some that I didn't think we'd have time for. And so I've saved them for another episode. Uh, but on this last kind of um, – you know, uh, kind of juice in the machine here. We had uh, more questions than I thought we'd have time for, and mm-hmm. a lot of good ones. Uh, in fact, few that I thought might be good for a standalone episode. For wow. just let's let's dedicate a whole episode to that. So, uh, if you don't hear a question, please, um, you know, don't be uh, upset or think that we've uh, forgotten you. Um, I log all these things down so we can use them for uh, future material as well. Ronnie, how are you? How you been doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, things are going well. Yeah, things are going well. I. Uh, I, I was just just telling you I had my uh, my car broken into this yeah. last last few days, so that that's been a bummer. But they stole a whole stack of theology books. Okay, so I can only hope that the Lord uses that. So hopefully, G.K. Beale's New Testament theology just really gets <laughs> to my robber's conscience. Yeah, it's not exactly um, born again or how to be born again. Yeah, or, yeah, that's right. They unfortunately know. did not steal gospel deeps. No. <laughs> But the gospel is there. That's exactly uh, right. <laughs> that's really interesting. These punk kids who are just out jonesing for theology books. Man, I'll these tell you. Days, is a, it's a hot black market for, for I can only biblical imagine, theology out there. I can only imagine my wife, her, her art textbooks, you know, they sold for two or $300. I'm assuming these guys are going to try to sell these as textbooks. And they're going to be really bummed when they get like eight bucks right. <laughs> out of each volume. <laughs> <laughs> they're looking up the, the Kelly Blue Book value of... <laughs> Art Principles 101. All right, let's get into it. We've got um, a good set of questions to work through, and we're just going to see how it goes. <laughs> uh, the first question we have comes from Facebook. Um, Jack Ringwater wants to know, what can pastors do to prepare for the upcoming election cycle? So just a really light, yeah, that's uh, right. non-controversial topic. <laughs> good one to start with. Yeah, so yeah, so next year we'll be going through once again. Well, it's already started. As we record this, there's a a debate, two-part debate in Detroit beginning tonight with the 10 Democratic <laughs> candidates. Uh, yeah, 10 of them. They're going to have to weed those suckers out. Uh, but, yeah, so it's it's already started. The conversation's already going. But here's a pastor, I assume, thinking, how do I shepherd my people through this? Mm-hmm. How do I um, – do I address this at all? That I mean, maybe that's a question to ask. So uh, what are your thoughts? What can pastor do to prepare for the upcoming election cycle? Yeah, I think this really is a good question. So, so thanks for asking it. Um, I think that the two the two primary things to think about is one, there needs to be preparation of yourself as the pastor and preparation of your people. And I think in terms of the pastor, I just think we learned a lot from 2016. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wait, 
Did we? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Maybe, maybe you're right there. We'll see. I think, yeah, hopefully we learned a lot from 2016. Listeners, I beg you to have learned from 2016. Uh, make social media great again by not there you go. <laughs> giving us 2016 all over again. Um, no, but seriously, when it comes to just a public conversation about these things, I think that what happened a lot in 2016 was people confused – their ability to speak about every political happening as the need to speak about every political happening. Yeah. And the invitation that social media gives to make your every political thought public is not an invitation that we have to accept. And so I think pastors can just practice wisdom and prudence there in terms of what is worth speaking into. It's likely fewer things than many pastors think it is. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of shepherding your people, I just – one of the things that I want to do that I, that I do frequently for our people is just remind them that it doesn't matter what season of life we're in. The fruit of the Spirit pertain to us. And so whether it's an election season or non-election season, that we, we must be demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and one of the questions that I just ask people frankly in my own church as I shepherd them through how to have the fruit of the Spirit intact during an election cycle is – is your abundance of political conversation, whether it's public or private or to your friends or to your family or on social media, is your abundance of political conversation aiding you in your call to be an ambassador of reconciliation? Mm. Uh, does your political involvement magnify or make much of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If it doesn't, uh, I'm not saying that every political post or every political comment you make you know, has to share the gospel somehow. But if it's co- totally contrary or maybe in the opposite direction of your call to be an ambassador of reconciliation, I think we have some some problems. Yeah, I think being selective, as you said, about the political opinions that you might share publicly, but also as you sort through what do I share publicly, um, maybe prioritizing issue type things as opposed to persons or personalities yeah. uh, or even parties mainly because of this witness issue, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, obviously pastors have political opinions just like everybody else. I do think that there is uh, a certain kind of discernment that pastors ought to exercise um, to be as apolitical as they can be, at least mm-hmm. in terms of their public platform or their public, um, you know, pulpit, as it were. But to think not just about your own constituency, your own congregation, your own tribe, so to speak, but also to think, is there anything that I'm saying that's going to push people who don't agree with me away from that's right. the message of Christ? Are they going to think that really what I'm centered on is this political viewpoint that I have? And this would go whether you're a left-leaning pastor or a right-leaning pastor or you don't even know where you are these days. <laughs> but the comments that you make, are you constantly, just as an example, something that I see quite frequently – are you constantly trashing certain Democratic candidates? Mm. Well, it doesn't mean you're wrong politically on those issues, but is the way that you're expressing yourself um, creating a potential for lost people to see, oh, this guy only cares about politics or he's you know, after this guy or this girl or, or what have you. And now they're pushed away from what actually matters more, That's right. most, um, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think another thing that's important this particular election cycle is that so many of us feel disenfranchised over the last five years. Yeah. And this concept of being politically homeless is really strong right now. Yeah. I, I know I even feel it personally. And so even just reminding 
your people and the, the people who come to your church that while they might feel politically homeless and they don't have a home in politics, they'll always have a home in the body of Christ. And, and there's much greater belonging in terms of an ecclesial community than there is in a political party. Yeah. I also think I should put a word in here for the appropriate cautioning of your people, of your congregation, about fear, about anger, about idolatry. That's right. And you don't have to mention political parties or political candidates to do this, um, but to just say – in, in the appropriate pastoral way, as we get closer to the election, emotions tend to rise up. The, the, you know, the fever pitch of social media and cable news mm-hmm. and everything else that we're taking in um, begins to, to play on our hearts, right? So I, you know, I had people in my church who I, I knew, especially um, you know, those who were retired, older folks, they have a lot of time at, at home and – I, I knew that they were watching certain cable news stations or it was just always on. It's the background noise in their home, but that's yeah. what they're watching all the time. And those shows, those stations typically are designed to uh, arouse fear in you mm-hmm. and concern and anxiety. And these folks are always stressed and always afraid. And it just was playing on the worst parts of themselves. And so I think it's appropriate not to go political, so to speak, but to caution your people to remind them about what, you know, that Christ is on the throne yeah. and that no matter what happens in, in the election, whether it goes your way or doesn't, that the greatest news, the greatest security we have is not who's in the White House, but who reigns from heaven, and that is Jesus Christ. That's a good word. So I think, yeah, so just as a final kind of put a bow on this, uh, Pastor, I would just remind you not to be driven either by um, your, you know, pulpit material or driven in your social media presence or just in your personal circles. Don't be driven by the election, but be driven by the gospel. And, and, and remember that these, you know, kings and princes, they come and go, uh, but Jesus Christ reigns forever. So right. let's keep that in, in the forefront. And pray. That's actually the first note that I made. <laughs> <The> first <laughs> question is pray, pray, pray. Uh, okay. Secondly, uh, this question comes from Drake, um, also on Facebook. How do young pastors lead with conviction and patience, not just older congregants, but also lay pastors, staff, and the deacons who have been around a bit? So if I can do a little bit of interpretation on the question, I think what Drake is asking is we hear sometimes about young pastors needing to lead older congregants, that dynamic of the generational shift and being new, being young, being untried. How do you lead with conviction and patience? People who've been around a while. But he's asking... You, you walk into a staff situation or a mm-hmm. leadership situation, and there are other pastors, there are staff, there are deacons, and how can a young pastor lead with conviction and patience in that sort of mm-hmm. uh, older or more traditional, uh, not traditional in a stylistic sense, but you're inheriting a leadership culture, I suppose. How do you lead with conviction and patience in the midst of that? Ronnie, you're a young pastor. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there's an angle in which we both – have a unique ability to answer this question. One, I'm a young pastor, but uh, but I planted. We we planted our church, and so yeah. I didn't I didn't walk into a scenario where there was established tradition. Uh, where yeah, you, you know, took the easy route. That's exactly right. <laughs> if there's one thing I know about church planting, it's, it's so the easy. easy route, church sure. is so easy. Yeah. Whereas you know you in Vermont, that that was a different story. Yeah. But I think I know the brother asking this question. So Drake, I appreciate you, my friend. Uh, this is a good question, and. 
I would just say one of the things in terms of the young pastor side is this was an insecurity that I had. It was kind of just ringing in my ears and in my head when I became a pastor, which is, is anyone going to take me seriously? You know, I'm so young. Um, how is this going to work? And one of the things that I found so advantageous was to just listen to people. Uh, I know that sounds like silly advice and maybe a little bit too easy, but if if you're trying to lead people who who think for good reason that you're not listening to them, that you're not sensitive to what they're saying, when they think something's a big deal, if you never think it's a big deal, that's not going to win them over. So practicing empathy, practicing the ability to uh, see their point of view, and then guiding them as a pastor. Um, you're the pastor of your deacons as much as you are your congregants. You're the pastor of their pastors as much as you are the congregants. And so listening well, posturing yourself in humility, yet with conviction, and then just pastoring as a pastor, uh, even if it's other pastors and deacons, I think that's that's the way to do it. Yeah, I've got first on my list that um, you ought to listen more than you speak. Yeah. Um, you sort of earn the credibility. Now, you do have to speak because sometimes if, if you're just passively always listening, then when you speak, it's seen sometimes as an interruption or, um, you know, you've adopted the posture of one who doesn't lead um, if you're just always listening, right? So mm-hmm. if you're the pastor or one of the pastors um, on a, you know, uh, you know, part of a plurality of elders or if you're the lead guy, what have you, um, especially the newer you are, the sooner you come in, listen to what's going on around you, listen to the different dynamics. You may be even reading uh, the culture wrong. And so you just need to, you know, listen um, to what people are saying, listen to the culture around you, and then um, pick your spots in terms of how you speak into it and when you speak into it. Um, so um, I think picking your battles is a is a big um, help there, uh, something that young pastors need and is this level of discernment because younger pastors tend to um, have a good and energetic agenda. Mm-hmm. And they see uh, more of the things wrong than the people who are there for a while have seen, probably. And so you may know that this needs to change, this needs to change, this needs to change. But prioritize that. Decide which hills are actually worth dying on and, and which ones are not, right? So, you know, your first year um, there in the church, you know, going to war over the American flag on the – I don't know if you've <laughs> talked about this on a previous episode or not. That might not be the wisest battle to pick. Yeah. You know, you probably you, – you, you've got good principles on why that shouldn't be there or what have you. But um, you really ought to be selective um, and, and play the long game in, in regards to some of these things. Um, thirdly, I'd say to be an encourager and a friend, right? So right. don't simply come in as I'm the leader who's going to, like, figure this thing out and steer this ship. But be someone who is a cheerleader for those around you. Um, you know, come alongside them. Be um, affirming of the good that is there That's right. and the gifts that people have. You know, you can almost say anything to people who believe that you love them. Mm-hmm. So it may be a while for you to sort of come alongside folks and help them to see that you're for them, that you're not just there to turn up, you know, things upside down and, and, and to shake things up or to tell them what to do or whatever it is. Um, but you're, you know, you're there to come alongside them, right? You know, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's right. It's, it's you know, presuming that you're not just um, at the point kind of giving out the orders, but you're in the midst of them. You're embedded, so to speak. And the last thing I would say is to actually be decisive. 
So there's something that can happen with younger pastors who are sensitive to this, right? And, and the fact that Drake is asking the question means that he's somewhat sensitive to this. I don't want to blow it up. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Uh, I don't want to push people too far. I don't want to seem like the young guy. You know, I don't want to be Bambi out on the ice, you know, <laughs> trying to get and just create a disaster. Um, but I would say there comes a point where if you're completely passive in relation to these things, that then becomes the expectation you've sort of um, submitted to this culture where the expectation is that you don't lead. And there are times where you need to not hem and haw about things. There are things that, that need to be done, um, especially things principally that the Bible speaks to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't think you should have um, any apology for doing the right thing and being decisive about it. This is what we're going to do. And and you know, not being afraid of what may come in response to that or the reluctance that may come to that. I think what many people want and, and need, whether they realize it or not, is a strong leader. Yeah. So not being dictatorial, not being authoritarian, not being a bulldozer, um, you know, bull in a china shop, but making the right decisions at the right time and being decisive. Don't him and haw. Don't be kind of wishy-washy about it because that communicates something mm-hmm. as well. Um, so be strong in, in, in the right ways. And remember that um, if they have voted you in or however you got there, God puts you there to lead in this position, and you should embrace that. That's right. And have all the confidence that that um, you know, uh, uh, brings with it. Okay, um, third question. This comes from Ben on Facebook. So far, all these folks have been from your church, Ronnie. I don't know. <laughs> um, it, it, is there something going on over there? It's, the, the pastors are too young. Yeah, at maybe this, that's what it at is. At this church plant. <laughs> and so all these guys have these questions. Uh, um, yeah, the first guy, Jack Ringwater, um, <laughs> and then Drake. Actually, Drake's not at your church anymore, but he was. That's right. Yeah, we, so, we, we sent him out. Yeah, that's right. He's doing faithful work. <clears throat> that's right. And then um, and then Ben. And Ben on Facebook says, how do we combat against only the lead pastor's care counting? Right? So uh, the context for this, I, I'm assuming, is when you have a plurality of eldership, and yet there is the lead voice or the lead pastor. Sometimes they're even called that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but for some people in the congregation, if another elder or the you know the one who's not the primary preaching voice or the one who's not the lead pastor, if that person comes to visit me in the hospital, it doesn't really count, or it's not it's, not, right. it's not the same, right? Um, so how do we combat against that? What are some things that we can do to um, sort of help our congregation see that all the pastors are pastors? Yeah, this is. This question, um, it, it just comes up often, and it's such a good question, so helpful to think about. And I'm going to end up sounding like a broken record on the FTC podcast, but I think one of the things that always has to be said is ecclesiology matters, and the way we talk about ecclesiology matters. And so when we, when we think through our doctrine of the church, when we think through what to call individuals in our church, when we think through who should uphold particular offices in our church, language really matters. And so if your, if your language structure and how you talk about each of the pastors uh, showcases that there is a pastor and then a bunch of hirelings who, who are kind of there on the <laughs> right. side as well, uh, that's going to show up in how people think about their pastoral care. Um, we, I think we've said on one episode before, uh, your, the guy who's the lead pastor at your church, uh, Nathan Rose, who, who we both love and admire, um, often refers to 
the other pastors as exactly that, as as my pastors or yeah. other pastors. And the lead the lead pastor at our church, uh, Josh Hedger, does the same thing. And uh, it's very clear that that we're all pastors, that we're all elders, that we're all overseers. We use those words interchangeably. Yeah. Our people know that. Um, they, I think another thing that matters outside of just calling them the right things is pulpit time. Yep. Pulpit time really matters. And when people see someone in the pulpit often, just even in their intuition, they start to affirm that person as their pastor. And so I think that matters. And that, that doesn't mean every elder should have the exact same amount of teaching time or, or what have you. But I do think that there should be some in front of the congregation leadership by the pastor so that they can see this individual as an authority. Yeah, so I, I agree with you, and the language is really important. Um, it, I think for some, it, it may seem like it's not, like it's such a little thing. That's right. But over time, you're shaping how people are hearing and receiving these other guys, right? That's right. <laughs> these, these guys in the background. So one thing that I appreciate that Nathan um, at our church does is when he – um, he's typically the one in the beginning who gives sort of the opening welcome, and he he'll say, "I'm Nathan." He doesn't say, "I'm the lead pastor." He'll say, "Nathan, I'm one of the pastors right. here." Now, those of us who are in the know, we know he's he's the only you know staff pastor at this time. We know he's the primary preaching voice. We know he's the lead pastor, and people who attend over time they know he's a lead pastor. But if you're just visiting, oh, he's one of the pastors. That's right. Um, and so I think over time, even you know for regulars, that language. But I think just the exposure. So the other guys aren't totally in the background, right? Um, you know, d- you know, different uh, pastors have you know, um, you know, different assignments based on the schedules and that sort of thing. But you know, we have a different pastor who will get up and do you know the prayer, and we have a different pastor who will get up um, and do the final benediction. And they always say, "My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here." And so they're all using the same language, which is to say, "I'm one of the pastors Love it. here." Um, but also, as you mentioned, the pulpit time. Um, so, you know, Nathan is our primary preaching voice, but he shares the pulpit a lot. And, and to his credit, he's very generous with that. And that goes a long way, a, a, a lot longer, in fact, than just the kind of language that you use. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone is fed, um, you know, by a pastor, they begin to see that person more as their pastor. And that might come out in the um, in, in other areas as, as you have exposure, right? So if you're going to uh, counseling with one of the other pastors, if that pastor comes to visit you, it it feels different. It feels like you were visited by a pastor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think these points of contact and the primary point for the whole congregation is from the pulpit, um, but also just you know different elements in the service that we're putting these guys up and and and. Um, you know, they're leading Absolutely. In, in, you know, in the congregational worship. Uh, so honor and exposure is really helpful. And um, I know this isn't the case um, at, at your church or mine, but there are some churches where I think the lead pastor um, has to take some responsibility in, uh, in this regard and actually sharing this honor and sharing this exposure with the other elders so that um, he's helping the congregation to see they're your pastors too. That's right. And being visited by one of them is being visited by a pastor, mm-hmm. right? So there's not just the pastor. There is pastors. Um, I remember when I was a pastor in Middletown, and I was the only full-time guy, and we had lay elders. And there was a little bit of of that, you know, going on. Um, but I was the one who had the most time to visit anyway. So, um, But there was a, one particular lady, and I went to visit her in the hospital. 
And it was sort of the opposite experience. Like I walked in. <laughs> well, she wasn't disappointed, uh, but she was surprised. Oh, it's you. Yeah, that's right. She walked in and she goes, I can't believe that you would visit me. And I said, well, why? And she goes, because you're just so busy. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is what I'm busy doing. Yeah, you know? that's right. Um, so in that moment, I don't think she w- was disappointed or, or, you know, that she would have been disappointed if someone else came. It sounded like she would have been understanding if someone else came. She would have been like, well, of course, Elder Dale is here because yeah. Jared is so busy. Uh, but in in a lot of cases, this does happen where uh, if it's not the lead guy, then it's not real. It doesn't count. And so I think the lead guy needs to take some responsibility in helping kind of um, affirm not just the illusion of parity, but actually the actuality of parity between elders right. and, and help the congregation to see that as well. All right, let's take a coffee break and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Okay, we're back. I'm here with Ronnie Kurtz in the Spurgeon Library. We're talking through questions, issues raised in the FTC mailbag, and we're going to continue with a really, I think, important question about bivocational ministry. This comes from Brian on Facebook. As far as I know, this fellow is not a member of your church, so <laughs> you, you dodged a bullet there. Um, yeah, yeah, this is Emmaus guy. He's got a lot of questions. That's right. Yeah. No uh, answers, though. <laughs> Oh, anyway. So Brian on Facebook wants to know, do you have any advice or suggestions that you could offer for bivocational pastors on how to best prioritize time for family, ministry, sermon prep, and so on? That would be greatly appreciated. Brian, that's a really great question, and we're going to do our best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And um, I don't know if this – so, Ronnie, you you are a lay – Elder? That's right. Yep. Because so you're full-time at Midwestern elder. Seminary. Okay. Exactly I, I didn't know if you were half or nope. what have you. Um, so I don't know if that qualifies as bivocational because you're not yeah. paid by Emmaus. That's right. But you do know this tension of I work full-time at another job and I'm a pastor. How do I prioritize these things? So I'm really you know interested to hear what you would say. Yeah, this is this is <laughs> this this question uh, kind of gets at the struggle of my life. So thanks for bringing it up, Brian. <laughs> Um, Way to go, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I am I'm a lay teaching elder, so I don't get paid by the church I serve. I'm a full-time employee of Midwestern, and I'm a Ph.D. student. And uh-huh. so um, having that, you know, I, I'm closing up seminars now, about to start dissertation, and all, all of those, you know, plus, you know, having a wife and other responsibilities, it all, it all means that I'm busy. And so in terms of the bivocational struggle or just even the busyness struggle, even your full-time guy listening to this um, or, or like me, a lay elder listening to this, there is a real struggle. And one, a few things that have really helped me is going out of my way to have clarity amongst the other pastors exactly what is expected of me throughout the week. 
right? Because what I do know that's expected of me is to be a pastor. There's no, there's no such thing as a pastor who's not pastoring. Yeah. And so what, what the title pastor can't be is just a title, yeah. right? If you're a pastor, you, you must be pastoring. And so even if you have a job that you're doing, you know, eight to five throughout the week or whatever hours you may have, uh, you're still called to shepherd these people. Right, they're, they're you're the person who the Lord has put over them, and they're the people the Lord has put under you, and so they need your care and they they need you to lead. However, when it comes to just day to day actual, what what does that actually mean? Okay, well that's that's good advice, decent advice, but what does it actually mean? Uh, this has been a series of conversations that I've had with the other pastors. So we have four pastors at Emmaus, and two of them are full time, two of us are not. And so the two of us who are not, I work here at Midwestern Seminary. The other brother is a high school biology teacher. And we we have very clear expectations from all four of us on what we're supposed to be doing. And that's really helpful. And then in terms of just managing time, the, the biggest lesson I've learned, and this isn't super practical necessarily, is if you're not proactive, a schedule like this is impossible. Yeah. If you're letting your schedule happen to you as opposed to kind of sitting up, owning your schedule, being on top of your schedule, it's just not going to work. And so I I find rest and productivity. I'm kind of wired to be a high-capacity person. And so this this doesn't feel like I'm drowning all the time. But in those seasons where, you know, I have a couple of sermons to write, I have a paper to finish, a seminar exam to take, and I have, you know, a really busy season at for the church in Midwestern, well – those those seasons need peculiar care in yeah. terms of schedule management and time management and being diligent and saying no to items uh, and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, I, I'm assuming from the question, and maybe I shouldn't be assuming this, but a lot of guys that I know who are bivocational or think in terms of bivocational ministry or who are most interested in this tend to be a solo pastor. Yeah. It doesn't tend to be uh, you know, plurality there. And so it's usually a guy at a smaller church, not always, but it's usually a guy at a smaller church. He's the only pastor trying to care for this congregation, but um, they can only pay him half time or part time or, or um, you know, something like that. And, um, and they're working a job, sometimes a full time job. So the key really is about, you know, prioritization. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's not about how can I do everything. It's you look at the reality of the situation, and you can't do everything. You you can't be a full time pastor, um, just by the you know strictures that are put on you by the circumstances. And maybe that's by um, you know uh, arrangement agreement. There are some you know men I know who say this is the best model for ministry, and they could be you know full time at their church, but they choose not to be for whatever reason. D. A. Horton has some good. Um, uh, uh, writing on this, you can actually go to to, uh, to for the church and search for him uh, there. And we have um, you know some articles from him related to this actually bivocationality as a strategy mm-hmm. for church planting. Um, so he even sees it as a as a plus that you should even you know uh, pray about maintaining that arrangement even if you don't need to. But most guys that I know would prefer to be full time at their church. And they're just trying to figure out how do I how do I pastor effectively and not sacrifice my family, and it really is about prioritization. So you have to look at what is it that you know, what are the irreducible things that make a pastor? And if you know if you look at in the Word, the you know the original distinction between the elder and the deacon when they created the diaconate was so that the elders could devote themselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. That's right. So you know right off the bat, feeding your congregation the Word of God. 
you know, the preaching and teaching ministry is is the top priority. It's not the only thing. It's not the whole of pastoring, but it is what distinguishes an elder from everybody else. You have to be able to teach. So the ministry of the word is the is a priority there. So you may need to rethink your sermon prep time. Um, it could be that you know you're you know you're not spending twenty hours a week in a sermon um, because you know you you barely have twenty weeks period. So you might need to rethink how much time you're putting into your sermon. Um, you know, not to short shrift. Uh, you know, the a devotional meditation on the word and 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 that sort of thing. Um, but you just have to rethink and reprioritize. You know, maybe I look at two commentaries instead of ten. You know, mm-hmm. and and this is really hard for studious types who just love to dig in. But Amen. Really, but I, you know, I do want to say that your sermon shouldn't come last. You should be prioritizing the ministry of the word and prayer. Then I would say, in the available time that you have for whatever time that you've allotted is is appropriate and healthy uh, for your schedule for pastoring, um, that you prioritize the discipling and training of maturing believers. Mm-hmm. And this is really strategic, first of all, because those who are further behind, the impulse for pastors a lot of times is to care for those um, who are further behind. And yet those who are further ahead than them ought to be or can be at least trained to, but um, should be able to disciple new believers. So you are the only guy who can disciple those who are further along or who are developing leaders. And there's um, so there's just the, you know, the reality of that arrangement just in terms of where you are in your in your Christian life and in your um, in in your faith maturity but there's also a strategy to this because if you're developing leaders you're more quickly getting to the place where you can replicate your own role and get to either a plural, uh, plurality of eldership or at least just being able to delegate to other leaders and take some of that pressure off so if you're spending um, you know all of your time with newer believers um, you're actually as as great and sweet and, and and wonderful as that is, what you're doing is actually elongating the time that it will take to get you to being able to offload some of the burden that you have to other leaders. Um, so find those who are uh, maturing, maybe someone who's been a Christian for a little while, maybe even young men who are aspiring to eldership, um, or at least that you 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 think ought to, and pour your time into them. And that may be all the time that you've got, really. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're called to equip the saints for ministry. So one place where I think the bivocational guy um, really breaks down is when he thinks his role is supplying all the ministry to the church and the yep. church's role is supplying all the need for ministry. That's exactly when right. You need to be thinking in terms of equi- equipping, especially if you're bivocational because your time is limited. And, uh, you know, the last thing I would say is um, actually two things. Think of your workplace, wherever it is, as, as your missional context. Um, you know, you know, not just as a place where you know, you know that helps you pay the bills, but are there um, evangelistic doorways there? Can you be uh, a witness uh, for the kingdom and an ambassador for your church, and you know, so to speak, um, in in your workplace? But also protect your time with your wife and family. Don't make them the last priority mm-hmm. um, in 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 your schedule. Um, you know, you want to pastor your people. You got to work to pay your bills. Don't let your wife and kids get leftover energy. Prioritize time with them. And if that means something has to give on the church end, it just has to give on the church end. And and that's where the prioritization, I think, um, comes into play. Um, I, I don't know what it's like to be bivocational like you, um, Ronnie. I pastored, um, and my situation was closer to the bivocational thing, I think, 
So the the church we planted in Nashville, I was the only pastor, so I didn't have other elders. I had a, some other leaders, but I was the only pastor, but I wasn't taking a salary. So I worked from home. I was a writer, freelance writer. My wife also worked um, outside the home, um, and, and so I wasn't paid by the church. Um, I was working from home, and so I had to kind of think through these things. There's, you know, certain things I just I'm not able to do, yeah. Um, you know, because of, um, of this. But, you know, I think if if you're prioritizing things in such a way to get your church on the way to replicating ministry, um, you either get to the place of being able to not be, you know, bivocational anymore, or you get yourself to the place where you're able to kind of offload some of these burdens through delegation uh, to other leaders. That's right. All right, let's move on to the next question here. This comes from Mike, on, also on Facebook. All these questions are coming from Facebook. The last <laughs> one will be from Twitter. Um, but this is from Mike on Facebook. He wants to know, what should pastors and elders expect of Christian teenagers in the church? A whole lot of shenanigans, Mike. You know, those crazy teenagers. <laughs> next question. Yeah, no, no. Um, this is his follow-up. He says, basically, what role do students play in the church beyond the youth ministry? I think this is a really good question. Absolutely. Um, actually. Um, Ronnie, thoughts on that? Yeah, we, we wouldn't have been able to answer this question. I wouldn't have been able to answer this question like just two years ago because what happens typically when you plant a church with young pastors is you get 20s and 30-year-olds who come to your church who have babies. Yeah. So we have a huge population of 20 and 30-year-olds and a huge population of infants but no teenagers. Yeah. And it wasn't until about two years into the plant that we started having teenagers come. And – and it really was life-giving to our church for a whole number of reasons, not just the fact that they have energy, um, but for for the fact that one of the things that we had to make a decision about when, when thinking about this question, how are we going to equip and utilize these teenagers, was we basically decided early on that we were not going to create a special category in our ecclesiology for teenagers. They're either going to be church members or non-church members. Yeah. And that's how we think about everybody, church members or non-church members. They're either a part of this group in an identifiable way or they're not. And if, if we allow them to become a part of the group in an identifiable way, meaning they become members, well, then they have the full expectation and full rights and privileges of membership. And we haven't been scared to – if we feel confident that they're believers, feel confident they can abide by our doctrine statement and our church covenant, then we felt confident to – give them ministry. Yep. And when we've done that, it's worked really well. Yeah. Uh, one example that I could give, and I won't name names here, but we have a teenager in our church who's about to not be a teenager. Um, and she is probably one of the most gifted teachers to our kids at the church period. Uh, she is just so relatable to them. They all love her. Every time she walks into the room, kids flock to her. And the way her ability to just think about scriptures and the nuances of childhood is is utterly unique. And so we have kind of this ace Bible teacher to our children in this teenage girl. And the last few years that she's served us have, have been remarkable. And so I would just encourage people to think uh, think in terms of those those caveats the Bible gives us, member, non-member, yeah. and then equip people to be faithful church members. Yeah, that was, you know, my thoughts begin where you uh, just went, which is it really depends on your ecclesiology or your polity. Um, and if teenagers are members or not members, if teenagers can be members, then any role that's open to members that's commensurate with their experience and their aptitude and their gifts should be open to them, right? So you would say, well, can you let them be teachers? 
well, there's certain adult members that shouldn't be teachers. So I, I don't think you're, you're going by age there. That's right. But you're just going, is this person appropriate for this role? Um, but if they're a member, then that opens the conversation. That's right. right? So maybe, you know. Um, you know, 16-year-olds shouldn't be teaching the senior adult Sunday school class or something like that. Um, but doesn't mean they shouldn't teach or can't teach. Um, if they have the gift, they have experience, perhaps they teach in the kids' ministry. I think there's something to, to really think through, and more churches ought to think through it. We have not solved, and when I say we, I just essentially mean uh, American evangelicalism. We have not solved, I know that's a broad category, but <laughs> we're looking at still, and I don't know if the numbers are the same, but I don't think they've gotten much better, 70% dropout rate. For, for kids who grow up in the church who then leave home, 70% of them stop going to church. Now, the good news is some of them come back when they're, once they're in their 30s and, um, you know, and they have kids and they want to be in church and that kind of thing. Uh, but we're, we're losing them like crazy. And it's not for lack of youth group culture. We've, got, right. we've got things for teenagers out the wazoo. So this is a really great question. We've got to start troubleshooting this um, not just to fulfill roles in the church, but to appropriately disciple teenage believers right. and young believers. So youth group is great. Um, you know, well, I mean, some youth group is great, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to blanket uh, approve of every w- way youth group is done. I'm not opposed to age-targeted ministry. I'm not opposed to youth group. Um, but I, I just think if that becomes the silo, that's what we do with teenagers, you're not training them to love the church, that's to right. be a part of the life of the church. And so, therefore, you should not be shocked when they leave home and they don't go to church because their experience of church is youth group. That's right. So what you're trying to do is actually integrate them into the life of your church. And, again, if they're members, this should be a no-brainer. If they're a member of the church, they should be integrated into the life of the church. So just a few things that um, Liberty Baptist does that I've really appreciated. So I'm a father of two teenage girls. One thing I appreciate, and they're both members, um, one thing that I appreciate is um, the the open doors for different volunteer roles. And, um, you know, so we're not a church plant, but we're in a similar situation. We're revitalization seven years in to that, eight years into revitalization. And a lot of the growth has been 20-somethings and 30-somethings. So a lot of small children, um, I think we kind of like 25 pregnancies um, currently right now. So we're about to have to like add a new building just for the nursery. That's right. You know? yeah. um, but not a lot of teenagers. So not a lot of folks my age, that's changing a little bit. Um, so it's not a big youth group. And we do have youth group. There's a Wednesday night, you know, youth group meeting. They go and do retreats together and um, camp and all that sort of thing. But um, one thing that I've appreciated is the open doors for my girls to be involved in the church, not just in youth group. That's right. So just as an example, um, the way uh, we do what most churches call Sunday school, it's called equipping groups, but it's basically Sunday school. Um, once you hit high school, you can go to any equipping group hmm. that you would like. So there is a youth class um, where if you're in junior high, you would go to that class. If you're in high school, you can go to that class if you would you know, still prefer. There's a, a, a teenager equipping group. But once you hit high school, you can go to any group. So my younger daughter, she's 16, she comes with me. To which is what is essentially a Bible overview. Every week we get a different um, teaching from a different book of the Bible, basically. And my older daughter, who is 18, uh, she goes with my wife to um, an, an equipping book that's a group that's been going through the book of Revelation. But they can go to the women's, you know, theology group um, uh, equipping class or any group that they want to. So now they're in a class with multiple generations, multiple experiences. 
also volunteer role. So my younger daughter, she serves in kids ministry and on the and the coffee team. She helps you know prepare the coffee for Sunday morning. God bless her. Yeah, I know it, man, and she loves it. And my older daughter, um, her primary um, means of volunteering is in the in the AV. So she runs slides or she does sound um, for our gathered worship on Sunday mornings, and she's in the rotation quite a bit. So they've opened those doors, and now my kids feel like oh, I actually contribute to the church. Yeah. I'm a part of the life of the church, and they're one not just a youth group but to the life of the church. So um, it's definitely important for teens to be involved in all these levels. And, um, you know, obviously your polity may dictate, you know, certain things if someone's not a member and teenagers um, um, are not members or can't be members. Um, if someone's not a member and they can't serve in such and such role, then obviously the teenager can't serve in that role. But if um, even if they're not members, if you've got avenues for people who are just a part of the life of your church, um, to win them into the life of your church, you're winning them to the church and not just to this, you know, stage of life ministry. I think that's really important. Okay, we're going to um, end here on sort of um, currently a, a hot topic. When this podcast comes out, it'll be about two weeks after some of this news has broken, and I'll speak to that in just a, a moment. Uh, ben, a different Ben than who sent a question earlier, Ben on Twitter um, basically describes coming out of what he calls purity culture, what a lot of people call him purity culture, wants to know um, what I think, what we think uh, about the, uh, the news regarding Josh Harris. And so if you're not familiar, um, you probably haven't been in a, um, reformed evangelicalism, I suppose, um, for quite some time. Uh, Josh Harris was a pastor at one time, Covenant Life Church in um, the Washington, D.C. area, Baltimore um, area. And uh, wrote a best-selling book, New York Times bestseller, millions of copies sold, called "I Kiss Dating Goodbye," which was um, one of the leading titles in kind of that true love waits um, purity movement. And uh, over the last several years, Josh has he's resigned from his pastorate that was several years ago actually to pursue uh, theological education, uh, and just recently announced, as of this recording, it was last week basically announced. Uh, separation from his wife, um, which they confirmed later uh, was divorce, and um, also, even more recently, just in the last few days, announced that he doesn't consider himself a follower of Jesus anymore. He's not a believer anymore. So there are folks on multiple sides, if you can call it that, of of this news. Uh, And this fellow, Ben, you know, basically um, is trying to sort through, how do I think about this? how should we think about this, or should we think about this? Uh, maybe that's something to speak to as well. But Ben wants to know, what are your thoughts on this? I'll just say that um, one reason um, we're recording this now, and it'll come, uh, you know, not, you know, not that the news would be any less sad or or less, you know, pertinent. Um, but I'm, I'm, I haven't said anything on social media about any of this, mainly because I just think. The hot take culture is is, yeah. is not helpful. Absolutely, uh, I think this is worth speaking to. Obviously, or we wouldn't be speaking to it. Um, but by the time you hear this, probably the the social media will be onto something else. That's and right. I never want the FTC podcast to be driven by the latest controversy or the latest <laughs> um, you know hot topic. But it's probably worth commenting on for people who have um, questions or just um, thoughts about how do we think about this. Um, yeah, so I'll just say why I haven't said anything, first of all. In fact, I, I initially responded to Ben on Twitter. I thought he was basically asking about purity culture and, and that um, kind of thing. Um, I, I don't have a heavy experience with that. And um, I th- I've been thinking about this a lot because there's this great concern, pushback 
against quote unquote purity culture. There's a resurgence of support for it. Um, there are those who feel like it's toxic. Um, this, uh, you know, what was put on um, teenagers of a certain generation uh, about remaining pure, um, you know, saving sex for marriage, but that the burden or the tenor of it was legalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps the most famous kind of salvo into the purity culture debate, although it wasn't couched that way, um, was Matt Chandler's Jesus Wants the Rose, mm-hmm. which is like his most viewed YouTube clip. And that was kind of a comment on the purity culture thing. So most of us who are be Matt's age, maybe younger, probably older as well, remember at least some kind of messaging in youth group days uh, or in church about, um, you know, how sex is dirty and gross and awful. Save it for the one you love, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so wow. there were mixed messages like that. Uh, and obviously there was a lot of um, legalistic fear-mongering about, you know, becoming an awful person if you do this and, uh, you know, repenting of making out with your girlfriend and all those sorts of things. Um, but, I, I, you know, I just want to admit that there's probably – you know, those who are having the hardest time or who felt like it was toxic maybe had a different experience than I did. I certainly felt like the tenor of youth ministry was 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 gospel deficient. Um, I certainly felt like there was kind of an implicit message, sometimes explicit message, um, about being damaged goods if you if you you know give into sin and those mm. sorts of things. Um, but I just don't remember this being a dominant thing. I didn't come out of youth group thinking um, that. Uh, yeah, so I just didn't I didn't see the toxicity of purity culture, and I just don't think it was as heavy. I, I you know, my generation was right before True Love Waits kind of began. True Love Waits began, I think, well, while I was still a teenager, but I was an older teenager. I hadn't quite taken hold mm-hmm. of youth ministry stuff quite yet, so we didn't get that when I was. Uh, Josh Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, came out. Um, I was already uh, an adult or young adult at that time. I never read the book. I've never read any of his books. So that's one reason why I haven't commented on you know, the worthiness or unworthiness of his message because I, I don't know what it yeah. is. And I don't want to assume just by the critics that they're right. I don't want to assume just by the fans that they're right. I, I don't know. So I feel like I have an uninformed opinion on it. But it came out after my time. I wasn't the target audience for it. I got mm-hmm. married when I was 20 years old um, after three years of dating. So I, you know, so I did date. <laughs> I, didn't, you know, I remember I was working at the Baptist bookstore when the book came out. I remember making fun of the book with other people, not because we knew anything about it, but just the title. Of and course, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, how do you meet somebody? You know, um, but that courtship kind of thing, that emphasis, that came about after I was, you know, out of the age for that. So it just never impacted me. But also, I, you know, I was thinking about this in the last few days. I want to acknowledge that it that doesn't mean that certain things weren't said or certain things weren't emphasized. That might have landed in the ears of females my age in youth group differently. So I don't want to say it wasn't there. Um, It could just be that there was a heavier emphasis for the young ladies that just didn't hit me. It didn't resonate with me or or didn't affect me like it might have affected them. So I don't want to say for those who, you know, might have been in youth groups with me um, when I was a kid, you know, if you were impacted by this, I'm not saying that it wasn't there. You shouldn't have been. Um, But I, I just don't feel like I have a a take that's hot yeah. <laughs> on purity culture. I just I just don't. Cold takes are better than hot takes anyway. Typically. How about you? I mean, were you I mean no, where were you generationally for this book? That's what I was gonna say is if if you have minimal exposure, I have none. And okay. and that's twofold. One, just my age, and two, 
I just wasn't a Christian. Yeah, I didn't become yeah. a Christian until late my teen years. You were really and, damaged goods. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Who would want that rose, Ronnie? <laughs> that's right. They even called me that in high school. Here comes all damaged goods. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. See, hey, Jesus wants the rose. That's right. Amen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so for me, this whole situation, I, I feel like an outsider, you know, looking into yeah. – people who I typically am an insider with talking about something that I don't really know about. Yeah. And so for my vantage point, <clears throat> what's been helpful, just to, be, just to remind myself, is one of the things that, that you said that really matters to me, and, and that's uh, hot takes are typically good. Or typically, they're rarely good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Talking about saying something I disagree with. That's right. Hot takes are rarely good. Yeah. And especially hot takes that happen on social media, they're rarely good. Yeah. And... And so in this situation, I've seen hot takes on both sides. You know, I've seen people really um, throwing Josh Harris under the bus, and um, and it's been sad to see. And then I've seen people really celebrate his, you know, basically the completion of his deconstructionism, if, if, if you will. Yeah. And, <clears throat> well, I don't know much about the situation. Basically what I want to tell the listeners and say to even people in our own church is uh, th- th- this kind of thing can be scary. And – I saw a person on social media post a link to uh, his Instagram post where he talks about this with a heart emoticon and praise hands emoticon uh, celebrating this person's deconstruction. And what I thought was even if you're more progressive than I am, even if you're more left-leaning theologically than I am, any theological system that celebrates someone walking away from Jesus is not a theological system worth having. That's exactly right. And – and what, what the whole process made me want to do is just hold my members close and help them get across the Jordan into the promised land yeah. and, and make sure they don't, don't die on the banks of, of deconstructionism. And so I, I just wanted to remind myself uh, this alarming you know, scene that happens to someone who I don't know. I don't know their work. I don't know. Yeah. I have no hot takes here. But what I do know is I know that I'm prone to doubt and I'm prone to sin and I need the gospel deeply in my own soul and so do my members. And so if I have anything to say about the situation, it would be, it would be that. Yeah. I, I'm along the same lines. And, you know, my first thought was when someone, quote, unquote, falls, I don't know if you would consider this a fall, like, you know, there's no affair that's been announced or anything like that. When a minister falls, and typically, you know, sometimes it's somebody that I know. Sometimes it's, you know, more often it's not. But I rarely say anything about it on social media. Because there's just so much you don't know. And, and, exactly. and it's grievous. To commit adultery is a sin. It's grievous uh, before the Lord. It's damaging to the witness of the church. It's damaging, obviously, to your marriage. You know, um, and I'm not saying that's what happened here. Um, and, and that's one reason why I also didn't say anything. It's just too many unknowns. Exactly. I mean, you know, people are weighing in. One thing that really bothered me is people who were <laughs> saying things to Harris um, as if he was at fault for the divorce or for the separation. When he first announced it, I don't think he said divorce. He said we are separating and people assume divorce. And then later I think he confirmed in another social media that we are divorcing or something like that. But the first thing I saw was I don't even know if they're, if they're divorcing. They're, you know, they're separating. And then people are jumping in to say, you know, you shouldn't divorce your wife and all these sorts of things. And maybe that is the case. But you just don't know. There's a hundred different things that could be taking place here. I have friends whose wives abandoned them. And for whatever reason, he didn't go on social media and say, my wife cheated on me and went, you know, for her sake, for the kid's sake, 
he felt like he had to share we're not together anymore because you just share everything on social media you know these days and that's a significant event in your life so you might want to mention that but you don't want to go into all the all the gory details but then when you don't people create stories and so you know in one particular friend's case he did everything he could to save his marriage mm-hmm. but the people in public have no idea they don't know that all they see is the announcement and they assume you did something wrong or you're at fault. Why didn't you? And he's like, man, for three years I've been, you know, praying, going to counseling, my wife, you know, whatever it is. And we just – you couldn't see that. I didn't know that. I, I didn't read the social media post, you know, post and go it's his fault or it's yep. her fault. You, you had no idea. So that was one good reason to say nothing mm-hmm. about it. Certainly not to congratulate for, you know, whatever the reason is certainly not to congratulate the situation or celebrate. And that was another reason why I didn't say anything, because as you mentioned, there are those on what we might call the more progressive side who they um, they're beginning to like Josh Harris because of his deconstruction of faith and all these sorts <laughs> of things. But they hated him. Yeah. And for some of them, it was, you know, they were celebrating this announcement. It's like, yeah, this is the the end result of your toxic you know theology and what have you. And I just thought, well, I'm not going to appear to be on on that side, That's exactly you right. know, by critiquing him and criticizing him. But I'm also not going to jump on him because I just don't know anything about it. I know that um, God hates divorce. Sometimes divorce is biblically allowable. I, I know nothing about this situation. Yep. He's not a friend of mine. He's not in my church. He's not a, a relative of mine. And, it, you know, unless you're one of those three things, uh, it's probably none of my business. Yeah. I always I tell our the guys who are in our pastoral residency program when it comes to gauging whether or not they should comment on social media. There's there's typically about fifty good reasons they shouldn't, and maybe a couple that they should. Yeah, and they need to be wise and diligent to determine when those couple of reasons outweigh the fifty yeah. that they shouldn't comment. And and here in this scenario, um, it just it was obvious to me that the couple didn't outweigh the yeah. the, the vast number of reasons to not comment. I mean. Let's just talk about the the theological issue with um, – so a few days after announcing that uh, he and his wife were separating, their remaining friends and so on, um, Harris posted something that's perhaps even more grievous. To me it was anyway, um, that he's not a follower of Jesus anymore, that he doesn't believe the same way he used to, um, that you know there's possibility. People have brought the possibility of uh, coordinating faith with his current – Situation and he's open to that, but he's not there yet. Essentially, what he's saying is, I'm not a Christian anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe like I, you know, used to. Um, and so, lots of people are weighing in on that. Of course, some who are saying, you know, he's gone out from us because he wasn't one of us. Those sorts of things, um, which are all applicable scriptures. Um, I don't know what you think about that. To me, it, it doesn't. You know, I I don't know the end of the story. I think at any stage in someone's life, to disbelieve is to put yourself in, in danger of the fires of hell. That's right. Whether you were a pastor before, whether it looked like you had strong theology or not. The question, was he never really a Christian? I, I don't know that we know that. What we're going by is he's saying, I, I don't believe. And to not believe is to say, I choose condemnation, even if just implicitly or un- unconsciously. Um, so I don't know that we can answer the question, Did he ne- you know, was he a fake believer all along? It's not the end of his story yet. So what we can say is now, if you're not a believer, you need to repent right. and, and believe or you're in grave danger. Um, so I think the response that we can have at this point essentially is to pray, especially if you don't know him and you're not close to him. 
probably shaming him and critiquing him on social media isn't going to work. Amen. I think you can make comments just like we're making comments now. You can talk about these issues. You can, you, you can talk about the things that are said. But the idea that you're going to you know, berate him back into the kingdom probably isn't you know, the right strategy. Um, I just think this is a sad thing. Yes. And we need to pray for him. We need to warn others, you know, just as you just did, uh, this you know, deconstructing of the faith. No, it's, it's we who need deconstructing, not mm, the faith. You that's know? exactly right. Um, it's, it's, it's we who needed our motivations and our attitudes and our dispositions and our souls examined. Um, the faith has stood strong for 2,000 years, and it, it doesn't need any deconstructing. So it's a dangerous thing where Josh Harris is, and we pray that this is a season of doubt. Um, but, you know, Jude tells us to be merciful with those who doubt. It's not a good thing to doubt. That's one thing I, that I think, um, just as a rabbit trail, on the progressive end of things, and, and sometimes we, even within conservative evangelicalism, this coddling of doubt. Mm-hmm. It's natural to doubt. It's normal to doubt. But it, the Bible never treats doubt like it's a good thing. Mm. Jesus always rebukes it. Um, we're told to be merciful to those who doubt, but we're told that, I mean, doubting is like being swept around by the winds and the way it's, it, it's not, you need to believe. So I think we respond accordingly and in, in to say that, that those who doubt should be prayed for. Um, I would hope that those who are close to um, Harris, you know, love him and appropriately plead for his repentance. Um, and I'll just close w- with this. So one way to look at it, and the whole situation is tragic, both you know, the uh, divorce and leaving the faith um, are probably like the two w- worst things that could happen to someone, if you, can, you know, if you can consider that happening to someone. Two worst decisions that you can make. And yet one thing, if I can just find a glimmer of appreciation – is if you're going to do these things, and some, and again, we don't know the story behind, especially the divorce. It might not have been his choice. I, I don't know. But if this is going to happen, he's, he's done it as well as I think someone in his previous position could do it, which is to say he resigned his pastorate, so he's not a pastor anymore, before all this stuff happened, or as, as far as we know. I don't know if he stopped believing when he was pastoring, but um, I don't think that's the case. Resigned his pastorate. And stopped selling books, stopped promoting his books. He did some documentary thing about the book. He went on this apology tour type thing. But I don't think he was the producer of that. He just was participating. But in any event, he did what we would hope somebody would do. If if you're going to renounce your faith and you're going to go through a divorce, he resigned his pastorate several years ago. So he's not a pastor anymore. Um, he stopped trying to be a platform. He wasn't a conference speaker, wasn't writing books for the evangelical marketplace. He, he went to school. I don't know how he was making a living, um, but he kind of just went back into his private life. I know he has social media, but everybody does. Of course. Yeah. So he can't help that he used to be the Josh Harris, mm-hmm. right? You can't undo that. But he just went to live his life. Then these things happen. If, if those things are going to happen, it's better than if he was still a pastor and was just faking it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, well, what else can I do? He at least had the integrity to say, I can't do this anymore. I shouldn't do this anymore. Um, at least had the integrity to say, I don't want to, you know, um, be a platform person anymore in terms of, you know, for the evangelical. That would have been a bigger betrayal. And whenever somebody fakes it and falls, 
um, it's it's a it's a if we can say more tragic or it's more damaging to the church. So I know that's an odd note to take. I'm not trying to put a positive spin on these things <laughs> at all, and yet he if you're gonna you know go through these things, he did it as as well as anybody could, which was he got out of the pastorate and he got off the platform. And that's what we would hope somebody would do if um, if this is the route that they're taking, if mm. they have you know questions about the faith or not believing um, anymore. And then really the last note that I would say uh, is to quote the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So pray for Josh Harris and his, I guess, ex-wife and their children. Um, pray for those in his circles. Um if you're friends with Josh listening to this, uh, please know that I'm praying for him and for his family um, and pray that the uh, the Lord's will will be done. If you're listening to the podcast, we thank you for doing so. I, I hope that this has been a blessing to you, that you found some great help for your church or for your ministry. If you enjoy us, please uh, share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.